Good morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Steve Williamson here. Sitting across from me is my co-host, Hava, good morning. Good to be here with you. We have a great guest today, um, Alice Rothschild. We've had her on the show, I think, twice already. Um, she's a physician, an activist, a filmmaker. Now I find out <clears throat> she's also a poet and a children's book author. <laughs> so, Alice, is there anything you don't do? <laughs> um, there's a ton of things I don't do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, all right. We're talking to you. There's been another big battle in in Gaza and uh, between the Israelis and uh, Hamas. And I think probably some smaller organizations there too kind of got this thing going. But tell us a little bit about the history of the latest conflict. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that language is really important, and to call it a battle sort of implies that there were two armies facing each other and having a battle. Um, whereas I would really call this an assault on Gaza. And if you look at what the triggers are, it all goes back, um, I mean, you could go back all the way to 48, but if we go back in recent history, um, it's important to look at uh, what's happening in Sheikh Sarrar in East Jerusalem. Uh, it's a neighborhood in East Jerusalem where Palestinians have lived. And there was a group of families uh, in uh, that neighborhood that were expelled by Israeli forces in 1948 from Haifa and Yaffa. And 28 families were settled in Sheikh Sarrar uh, by the Jordanian government because they were, um, you know, in charge of East Jerusalem at that point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as time went on, they made a deal with Jordan uh, to get land deeds, official deeds that said they were owners of this house. And in exchange, um, they would renounce their refugee status. So they gave up all the international protections that refugees have, but in exchange, they got property rights. Mm-hmm. But after the 67 war, uh, Israel took over East Jerusalem, and they developed uh, a settlement plan. So their plan uh, was to build a string of Jewish settlements and parks around the old city and to remove Palestinian homes and Palestinians. And they used, you know, outright confiscation. They used endless, you know, tortured legal battles. And um, there is a law in Israel that um, Jews can... Um, reclaim land that they lost in 48, um, but there's no law that says Palestinians can reclaim land they lost mm. in 48. So there's a lot of uh, political issues here. And right, there are actually about 20,000 Palestinian homes that are at risk for demolition at this point. Mm. So then um, Israel has been trying to get rid of these Palestinian families. And then um, during Ramadan, um, it was also Memorial Day in Israel, and uh, Israeli uh, uh, police entered Al-Aqsa Mosque and cut the cables to the loudspeakers that announced the call to prayer, which was a real sort of poke-in-the-eye kind of thing. And then, you know, things were really tense. And at that point, uh, Israel decided to block Palestinians from the West Bank coming to Al-Aqsa Mosque on, you know, one of their most religious holidays. Mm-hmm. And so it got pretty uh, violent because people objected to that. And then there was uh, this thing called Jerusalem Day, which is this sort of rocket, raucous national celebration where Israelis uh, celebrate the capture of the Israel uh, of Jerusalem in 67. And then the Israeli police stormed Al-Aqsa and tear gas people 
and uh, you know fired rubber bullets, and you know thirty three hundred thirty Palestinians were injured. And with all of this provocation, it was like poking and poking and poking. And then Hamas uh, began to launch its rockets. So I think we have to be really clear on the fact that Israel deliberately uh, committed these provocations, and that at some point, you know, resistance movements respond, whether you like how they respond or not. Um, so. That's why I consider it more an assault than a battle. And I think we also have to remember that uh, Israel is one of the major uh, military powers in the world, uh, has a huge amount of very lethal weaponry. And, you know, Hamas um, has rockets that they've been developing that are not well aimed. And, you know, they commit human rights violations as well. But they are in no way... um, on par with the Israeli right. military. They don't have an iron shield. <laughs> yeah. hmm? They don't have an iron shield to protect themselves from bombs and right. rockets. They don't have bomb shelters. They have the civilians, and there are probably over 2 million people there now, maybe 2.2 million. Hmm. They, you know, People say, well, you know, they got the knock on the door, the phone call that their house was going to be bombed. and So where are they supposed to go? You know, I mean, Israel really targeted the cities this time, and it hmm. was devastating they targeted um, 18 hospitals and clinics. They targeted residents, you know, apartment buildings. It, there was no way to flee, so there, so there was no safe place. And they also targeted, you know, electrical facilities, water purification, sewage treatment. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has nothing to do with military targets. And so, um, it is really uh, an assault rather than a battle. And has America, did, has the United States given more money to Israel since this uh, assault began? Well, The Israelis are asking for more money. They want money to, you know, replace whatever of their Iron Dome thing got used or whatever. Um, But it hasn't passed in Congress as far as I know. But just, you know, I think it's a lot of chutzpah to then ask for more money Mm -hmm. and and then also say that the U.S. should help rebuild what they have just bombed. So, you know, the pattern is we give them billions of dollars in military aid. They use it on Palestinians, and then they won't. And then they say, well, the international community has to rebuild. And then we rebuild and we give them the money to destroy mm-hmm. it again. I mean, this is not um, a reasonable foreign policy. Uh, this mm. is a disaster. No, um, it's crazy. And I, I, my impression of Israeli policy is it's always been about collective punishment. It's always been about hurting people. So during their war with the, in Lebanon, they blew mm-hmm. up bridges and stuff in the far north end of Lebanon that had no part in the conflict right. at all. They mm-hmm. had no military right. value. They just were hurting Lebanon, punishing Lebanon and Lebanese for their part in not fighting the war. You know, they it wasn't right. even, even they weren't even fighting it and they blew up. Right. And, and so the destruction of Gaza infrastructure is not exactly unpredictable. They've done this sort of thing over, over and over, over right? right? And the other thing they've done is that Netanyahu, uh, I've always wondered whether Netanyahu felt like he needed a war to win the current election mm. that he just lost, because um, that's what he did in 2014. Um, he needed a war to rally everybody and to show he was such a toughie. Uh, uh, this time it didn't work out well for him, but I think there are also internal political reasons why the Israeli government chooses particular times to decimate Gaza for their own ends, um, which is pretty appalling as well. So they expect the international community to rebuild it. And if you've seen the right. folks, if you've seen the pictures of Gaza or New York Times had a pretty, a pretty good description of where the destruction was. 
it's just absolutely massive. Uh, Gaza mm-hmm. is not occupied physically by Israel, but Israel controls. Uh, wait a minute. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. I would really disagree with that. All right. Mm-hmm. Israelis claim they're not occupying Gaza, but you have a small strip of land, six by 26 miles. Its borders are controlled by Israel. Its land and sea is controlled by Israel. Mm-hmm. All imports and exports are controlled by Israel. I don't care what the Israelis say, but that's occupation. And the international community considers Gaza to be occupied. So I wouldn't say that Gaza is not occupied. They don't have troops inside. That's what I meant. They don't need troops inside. Yeah, I I thought they, at one time, they had troops and settlements inside Gaza. Right. And one settlement was a real. Yeah. And one settlement was the site of uh, a tremendous amount of killing. And then, I don't know, what, 2007 or something, they just pulled out. 2005, yeah. 2005. And right. it's hard to understand. All right, let's ask. I guess nobody talks to Hamas. We don't have any idea of what they're thinking. Why would they? Um, you can know what Hamas is thinking by reading what they say. Okay. You know, and they do talk to the Egyptians. So it's not that Hamas is a mystery. Um, and also Hamas is not a monolith. So there are many different voices within Hamas. So... Clearly, Israelis don't speak directly to them, but there are certainly indirect um, communications, and there's their published public statements. So why do they fire all these rockets that do almost no damage and kill almost nobody in revenge and then cause this massive or massive, or give excuse for this massive attack on Gaza? Why do they do that? So, um, I can tell you what my interpretation is. Sure. Um, my interpretation is that um, there is that oppressed people have a right to fight their oppression, and that uh, Hamas has uh, had a whole militant wing. It's had a whole uh, much more nonviolent wing that does a lot of social service and orphanages and schools and hospitals and that kind of stuff. And that there always comes a breaking point where the people who are involved in militant resistance feel like they can't take it one more minute, and that mm-hmm. if they don't respond to Israeli aggression, no one notices. And so what they did this time, according to my read, is that they made Israel pay a bigger price than they've ever paid. It was a small price compared to Gaza, but Israelis lived in fear for 11 uh, days, and people, you know, 12 people were killed, including two children, and people spent time in bomb shelters, and this was a very different experience for Israelis. Um, even though, you know, the level of destruction was just minuscule compared to what the military did in in Gaza. So from Hamas' standpoint, they made Israel pay a price for their aggression. It may not be a sensible policy, or it may be what resistance movements do, um, but it's the only time they get noticed. You know, with all the talking that goes on, no one pays any attention. But if Hamas fires some rockets, then people pay attention. So that it was, in my view, um, both how oppressed people respond to oppression. And it was also a call for the international community Mm. to really take note and for Israel to pay a price. And so right now, where do things stand in the ceasefire? Is it just rebuilding at this point? There is a shaky ceasefire. Um, Not much has been gained except that the aggressive killing has stopped. Um, within hours of the ceasefire, um, Israeli police uh, attacked Palestinians in Al-Aqsa Mosque again. So the Israelis don't seem to have 
changed any of their policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they continue to uh, talk about getting rid of more families in Sheikh Jarrah. And they just ag- agreed, the new Bennett government has agreed to let uh, this right-wing march come through Jerusalem, which is another flashpoint. So who knows? Um, so it's pretty fragile. Um, but it's happening right now. So that's where it's at. But it's fragile. And with this march in Jerusalem, you know, if right-wing settler types do aggressive things, kill some Palestinians, who knows if the whole thing will explode again. And you're um, feeling like it's getting there. They're just going more and more right, that Israel is just becoming more and more of, of, a, of a right-wing um, Yeah, nothing that will really help move the country right-wing. Um, the current coalition is incredibly fragile. Uh, Bennett is to the right of Netanyahu, which is a hard thing to imagine. But he has within his coalition some more uh, moderate progressive types, um, like Merit. And he also has this Islamic, Palestinian Islamic Party. Um, so th- I can't imagine how they're ever going to get anything done, because the only thing they could agree on was that they wanted to get rid of Netanyahu. But I think what they're going to do is not make any foreign policy decisions, because no one can agree. Um, so we'll see. I think they're going to focus on domestic issues. And, you know, for most Israelis, they don't think about the occupation. The Palestinians are out of sight, out of mind. And the only time they think about them is when there is some eruption of violence. Um, so I think that's where it's going to settle um, if the ceasefire holds. Um, but it really, I think at this point, uh, depends on the level of provocation in East Jerusalem. Well, it's and, a know, very sorrowful right situation. Yeah. Huh? It's a very sorrowful situation that right. that we have, you know, one yet another tipping point. And you know, we keep interviewing you, and it's usually after Gaza has been smashed to the ground and the buildings mm-hmm. blown up and um, their sewers are blown up, everything. At this time, the Israelis hit the, interestingly, they hit the uh, television tower, right, and right. broadcast yeah. thing to silence any reporting from Gaza. Right. So, I mean, I think... I think people are sort of reluctant to look at what actually happened and what it means. I mean, you right. don't deliberately broke, break up and destroy a broadcasting tower unless you want to shut people up. I mean, what else? Would, why also, else would you um, do it? They also damaged the only COVID-19 testing center in Gaza. Oh, and, wow. you know, the Israelis claim that they have very sophisticated weaponry. They can target their bombs, you know, to the millimeter, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but if you look at the level and the type of civilian damage... Um, it's got to mean that that was deliberate. And, you know, for me as a physician, I've been tracking uh, the COVID-19 pandemic for, since it started. I do a weekly uh, COVID-19 timeline for Jewish Voice for Peace uh, Health Advisory Council. And the thing I find really fascinating is in the last two weeks, the amount of reporting on COVID-19 in Gaza and the West Bank has just dropped precipitously. And my interpretation is, that now that the Israelis have gotten the pandemic under control in Israel because they vaccinated their own citizens but didn't vaccinate the people that they occupy, which is part of the requirement of being an occupier, the international community just doesn't care. And then the whole program was disrupted in Gaza with the assault. So the, vaccine, the vaccination program stopped because they couldn't bring vaccines in. They damaged the testing center, so there were days without any testing. Um, so we don't even know what the numbers are. I mean, the numbers that I have been able to get um, are pretty uh, shaky underestimations of what's going on. Because if you think about it, for 11 days, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, uh, 
lived together in shelters and in UN schools. There was no social distancing. There was no clean water. You couldn't wash your hands. I mean, just think about that alone. Mm. Um, there's got to be a massive explosion of coronavirus there. And if no one's documenting it, we're not going to know it's happening until people start dying. It's a very young population, so there's going to be a lower death rate than if it was an older population. But, you know, again, public interest fades as soon as there's no shooting. And that's a big problem. And the impression you get if you look at the history of this thing, and I'm sorry to say, is that basically nobody cares about the Palestinians except some NGOs who help them out. The, even the Arab uh, countries are now cutting deals with Israel. Um, right. You know, so. Well, if you think about it, these are repressive <clears throat> Arab regimes. Uh, yeah. They're cutting deals because they want military weaponry, yeah. and Israel's willing to sell it to them. So it's not like they had um, some kind of heroic stance in, you know, solidarity with the Palestinian brothers. Uh, it, that only worked until they wanted, they had the opportunity uh, to get something from Israel, which they wanted, which was military funds, uh, sources. So as we're talking, it's a very pessimistic uh, picture, Alice. Um, where is this going, do you think? Uh, I, uh, well, I think that although it's extremely pessimistic, that things are actually changing. And um, the first thing I would say is that the boycott, divestment, sanction movement continues to grow um, in amazing different ways. I can just say I live in Seattle now, and in the last week we have an Israeli cargo ship called Zim, Z-I-M, that has been unable to unload its contents because the dock workers are striking and refusing to unload in solidarity mm-hmm with um, activists who've come to the port uh, to stop uh, wow. this Israeli vehicle from unloading, which is a form of boycott. And this ship was also in, I believe, San Francisco before. So um, this is really amazing that activists and unions have been able to stop an Israeli cargo ship from unloading. And it's a, it's a sign of the power of the uh, boycott movement. And yesterday, uh, the Seattle uh, um, Teachers Union uh, voted to support BDS and to stand in solidarity with Palestinians. This is amazing. This is a stunning victory. Um, and it's the second school system to do that. So, um, you know, there are these little moments that are very, very big. The other thing is that the, let's say you take the coverage in the New York Times, which is a major uh, newspaper that usually writes about Israel uh, with Jewish reporters that are very pro-Israel. Um, They have been doing a much more honest um, assessment. You know, not everything, but a a lot of really good reporting about what's going on. And that's new. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a shift. If you look at our Congress, we now have, you know, Palestinian, we have Muslims, we have progressive Congress people who are raising the issues, who, uh, like Betty McCollum with her bill to stop uh, using U.S. funds to kill Palestinian children, name and kill Palestinian children. This is new. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, Alice. It's not like it's stuck, but it's you know creeping along. Yeah, I was going to ask you if this change in administration, if anything has shifted, um, but it sounds like you just described that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are changes in Congress. I think, uh, you know, Trump was really, really terrible, and Biden is going to be less terrible, but I wouldn't look to him for any major um, uh Steps oh, right, not when you look at our um, connection and when I how look much at, money. You know, he's very, we stand with Israel, you know, in our quest right. for peace yep. and fight against terror kind of statement. Um, I don't think, he, I mean, he's not moving the 
uh, U.S. Uh, consulate out of um, Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. You know, he supports a two-state solution, which is completely done on arrival, given the growth of the settlements um, and the level of militarism in the West Bank um, and the seizure of the Jordan Valley and all the things that we know that have created sort of basically little Bantu stones for Palestinians to live in. Um, you know, so I don't have high hopes for him or for yeah, vice president. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, there's, there is a, a little more breathing space now that Trump is not screaming at us all the time. There's not much difference in Israel between the, um, the left and the right. Uh, a lot of times in terms of the treatment of uh, Palestinians until you get to, I guess you'd call it the far left or very serious and left. Right. Uh, well, the, I think, you know, the, the big problem is that there are very many decent progressive people in Israel, but they're not questioning Zionism. Mm-hmm. And um, it's only the more left of them that are questioning Zionism because um, until you really take a serious look at having um, a, a political uh, um, worldview that Jews should be privileged over non-Jews in Israel and Palestine, um, you're never going to get to a better place. So that's what the fundamental problem is, is that even the progressive people who are decent and have, you know, respect human rights and want to do, you know, have a progressive democracy, haven't really done the hard look that you have to do. So what would be the, the solution? Suppose someone is an Israeli Jew and it faces the pro- what this was really sort of very simple is a stronger people came and took a land away from a weaker people. I mean, this is human history has happened thousands of times. Right. It's, it's colonialism, yeah. But if you're a liberal in Israel, there's no way around the fundamental fact of how the country was founded. So what's right. the solution? How if you if you if your interest is in fairness and justice for everybody, what's your political solution? Because you've got You've got problems both among the Palestinians and among the Israelis in right. in the dealing with the so, issue. You know, so I think you know we can take inspiration from um, Native peoples in the U.S. Uh, you know what Israelis, I would say, really need to do to move forward is to take a hard look at the founding of the country and to examine its founding mythology and to acknowledge that seven hundred fifty thousand Palestinians were expelled and thousands killed, and over 500 villages destroyed, and that that was a form of genocide of the indigenous population. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, they needed to do it, and it was post Holocaust, and you can do all of that, but the fundamental problem is that that actually happened. And so what Palestinians want is, first of all, an honest assessment of the history. The history is there. There are plenty of Israeli Jewish historians that have written the actual history. There are plenty of Palestinian historians who have written the actual history. But the government and the people haven't acknowledged it in a core way. And the problem is that once you acknowledge it, then you have to apologize and you have to do reparations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think that that would be the first step that Israelis, Jewish Israelis, need to do. It's, It's like having their own civil rights movement and really looking deep into their souls and their history and saying, you know, for all reasons that we can talk about, this is actually what happened. And we need to actually state this, apologize, think about reparations, think about how we can move forward, looking at Palestinians as equal, deserving human beings. And yeah. until that happens, it's going to be kind of like Jim Crow in Israel and mm-hmm. apartheid in the West Bank and Gaza. I mean, that's what we got. 
And, and maybe Israelis are willing to live with that. Um, I hope not. You know, as a human being, I hope not. But we have to see. They need their own civil rights struggle. Yeah. And it's got to, you know, it's going to be painful and hard. And, um, and right now there's no reason for them to do it because there's no price that Israel pays. And one of the interesting pieces, uh, Alice, in my uh, going down the wormhole and, and uh, listening to your interviews was this piece, uh, trauma piece of this that plays mm-hmm. into this history between Palestine and Israel. And um, one of the things you said was that Palestine's been paying for the paying the price of the Holocaust right. uh, and Jewish right. trauma. Um, and, uh, you know, this has kind of been standing in the way of, of uh, maybe this deeper healing that you're talking about. Right, right. But if I'm Israeli and 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 I want want fairness, Alice. If I'm Israeli and I want fairness, I don't want to give up being an Israeli. I don't want to have to move, you know, back to someplace in Europe. I want to stay having a country in the middle Middle East. Right. There, people are not being asked to leave their country. They're being asked to share their country, and that's different. Um, and you know, I think the problem is that that is very hard, and that. There is no reason for Israelis to feel like they need to do that because they have a big, powerful country and they're, you know, they feel like they're winning in the world of opinions. And so Mm -hmm. I think change is only going to come uh, through international pressure. And one of the things that's very interesting in the United States is that um, the allegiance to Israel as a state uh, in the Jewish community markedly drops as you go to lower and lower ages of Jews. So younger generations are really much more, uh, question much more um, the Israeli mythology. Uh, they feel like, well, if we're supporting Black Lives Matter here, how could we not right. support Palestinians right. there? If we're fighting against police brutality here, mm-hmm. how could we not criticize Israeli police, you know, tear gassing Palestinian right. civilians? You know, it's like they're, they're unwilling to have a double standard, which their grandparents and maybe their parents had. Yeah. And so, you know, those younger generations are going to get older and they're going to be in positions of power. And so it may be that things will change here because the post-Holocaust trauma generations are going to move on yeah. and their children are going to have different opinions. I think the big question is what's going to happen in the evangelical community because they are a much bigger than the Jewish community and have a tremendous amount of power, influence in Congress, and they are not showing any changes in their allegiance to Israel. and Me Christian evangelicals? And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, what, you know, so many what, of them are preparing for Armageddon and, you know, the second coming, and they feel like um, Israel's just a step on the right. way Right. You can't and argue with the Bible, right? problematic. Right. Hmm? Yeah. So you can't argue with the Bible. Come, when it, right. I can. You know. yeah. <laughs> so, so if the Israelis uh, individually or as a group or as a nation reached out to the Palestinians, do you, would you know? Would the Palestinians reach back? Would there still be uh, uh, calls for violence and complete rejection of of uh, having Jewish settlers in the area that are now Israelis? Would there so, is, um, would there be would there be you know, a compromise? Out the Palestinians, <laughs> um, you know, there are many different Palestinians with many different views. I think if you look at um, the support for the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment, sanction movement. The vast majority of Palestinians don't want to be fighting with anyone. They want a peaceful resolution of this process, but they want to have a just resolution of this process. And I would say if you look at even the history of Hamas, which is, you know, everybody loves to hate Hamas, uh, you know, Hamas did accept the Saudi peace plan, which involved 
a two-state solution with, you know, recognition of Palestinian rights. So it's not that there's this implacable foe that is eager to drive Jews into the sea. That's a mythology. I mean, you can find a voice that says that, but the vast, vast, vast majority of Palestinians, they just want this to stop. They want to be able to have good work, raise their children, not be worried they're going to get killed when they walk down the street. I mean, this is not complicated. Um, and you can say, well, are they going to like having settlements? No. But the question is, how do they live together? And if the settlements take the water, are hugely uh, you know, militarized, um, make it very difficult to travel from point A to point B, get all the resources, get all the funding, that's not a just solution. So if you want you know, peace, you have to have justice. So I think that you should, it's, it's time to get over the idea that Palestinians are this violent group that wants to destroy Israel. That is like not a reality at all. And I think people would welcome a just solution if, if it was just. And, and that's the big issue. And I would also say that Palestinian leadership has been highly inadequate for years. And there are a lot of movements within Palestine uh, that are very progressive and forward thinking and creative and looking at what would a you know, a secular democratic state look like? What would a federation look like? How can we move this discussion forward? There are think tanks in Palestine looking at this. There are mm-hmm. academics writing about it. So I think you have to look at it in its full complexity and, and also that the people change and people move forward. Right. So, Alice, when's the next opportunity for big change like that? Elections coming up or in, in Palestine? Um, well, the elections were canceled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Um, and you can say, well, you know, the Israelis wouldn't let East Jerusalemites vote because they didn't want to have these elections. You could say the Palestinian Authority didn't want to have elections because Abbas doesn't want to lose his power. Uh, you know, it's a it's a not very functional ele- uh, election electorate. Mm. Uh, you know, and so the Palestinians need to do their own work. But I don't know that this is going to come to elections because Israel has to change, and mm. Israel is nowhere in the mood to do anything. So. Um, I think this is an ongoing process where the international community calls out apartheid when they see it and pressures Israel to change its behavior. And Palestinians um, lead that struggle and bring their voices to the forefront. And that's what we got to keep doing. It's not going to be like, you know, on October 1st, it's going to change. It's not that kind of process at all. But I am very inspired by um, younger Palestinians coming up and younger thinkers and uh, leaders that you know, have a totally different style uh, than Abbas, who's uh, long past his uh, um, age of exploration, shall we say. Mm, yeah, it's uh, been really yeah, it's been really heartening to see uh, the younger people in Palestine. I've watched a lot of um, you know live uh, interviews and and uh, speakers, and it's it's very heartening to yeah. see the movement. Uh, are you familiar with uh, We Are Not Numbers? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is um, a group that I work with. Um, and what we do is we mentor young dozens, um, 18 to 30, that uh, want to be writers and journalists and talk about their lives. And we mentor them um, and support their writing essays about their lives and then publish them on the website. We are not numbers. And it's a really good way to know what Palestinians are thinking in Gaza, yeah. uh, to read uh, the essays by these young people and to read about the level of trauma they live with, which is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I would still, think they that. They have aspirations and they want to go to college and get married and, 
Yeah, thank goodness for these platforms where, you know, these young voices can be heard rather than yeah. just kind of this uh, nebulous uh, conflict happening. I think last time uh, we talked, you said that uh, 60% of the college ga- graduates, I think it was it in Gaza or, or the West Bank, both uh, were unemployed, couldn't find jobs. It's 70% in Gaza, yeah. 70%. 70%. So that just sounds and it's terrible. I mean, population, you know. It sounds terrible from the point of view of conflict, too, because you've got all these young people getting the education, and they get out, and there's nothing for them to do. Right. I mean, it's 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 an unstable situation long term. Right. Um, right. So I I I I hear you on this, but. You know, if you're Israeli, this is a very difficult thing to ask, to look at the real founding of the country. In the same way in the U.S., we've had to look at the real founding of the United States with slavery as a major economic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, engine, with the taking of Indian lands. And you could – the truth is, you know, some of the Native Americans were friendly. Some of them were fierce fighters and didn't want to talk about anything. It didn't matter. They all got basically robbed, whether they were whatever their particular... Displacement of our indigenous community. Mm -hmm. Same thing in Palestine. I think Israelis have a choice, and they can either do this hard work, or they can live in a place where they are surrounded by people that um, are oppressed by them and really uh, are increasingly um, dislike them and, and make it harder and harder to live together, or they can move it forward in a, in a way that has some possibility of a future. And I think that's a choice they need to make. And just, yeah. you know, it wasn't, it's not easy in the U.S. either. Um, I mean, we're, we're different because we're, you know, we're not surrounded by the folks that Israel's surrounded by, and so the dangers are different. But it is a choice that people have to make, and um, I hope that they come to the point where they can make it. And I think that uh, international pressure is the way to make people realize that if you don't do this, this is going to be a chronic issue, and it's unfair to people, it's immoral, it's illegal, and, you know, it doesn't have a, a viable future. And so that's uh, highly problematic. Well, if you are young people, you know, in both Israel and Palestine are going yeah. to be the... the yeah. I've, I've watched the Palestinians just get clobbered my whole life, decade after decade, always mm-hmm. losing, always on the, on the, the short end. As Israel's gotten more powerful and 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 uh, and also wealthier, I mean, I don't know. It's very rare, Alice. This has nothing to do with the particulars, in a sense. Powerful countries who have really military strong strength don't really negotiate fairly with with their adversary. Right. They? If they could beat them down and kill them when they why protest, they? why would you ever have a decent negotiation and sharing and stuff like that? Right. This is not a Israeli Jewish thing. This is a no, no, in human history. This is what generally goes on. So breaking that pattern very difficult. So, you know, we have to ask do we want to give them 3.8 billion dollars right. a year to buy military yep. weaponry? Yep. That's our responsibility. Mhm. Yeah, we've contributed to this. So on that note, Alice, and I know you guys spoke about this in 2018, um, but will you speak a little bit more about the uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement? Sure. How that's- so um, in 2005, a group of civil society activists in Palestine began organizing a boycott, divestment, and sanction movement um, against Israel. And there were certain demands um, 
there were one of the demands was that uh, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, who basically have second-class citizenship, uh, be equal citizens. Another demand is the end to the occupation, and the third demand is uh, justice for all the refugees that were displaced um, after the 48 and 67 wars. And you know, it started out small, but it has been growing internationally and has affected governments, countries, um, cultural workers like uh, performers, uh, academics. And so I see it as um, a s- parallel to uh, the boycott of South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, which is another you know, settler colonial state that had a very racist policy. Um, it's not the same, and I know that. Um, but I think it is uh, really changing um, international opinion about Israel and sort of cracking the mythology. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it is one of the most exciting things to come out of the struggle for some kind of just resolution. Um, and the thing to remember is that when, you know, Palestinians um, fight back uh, violently, they're condemned. And now they're fighting back nonviolently, and many people condemn them as well. So you can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. So I think that supporting nonviolent resistance against Israeli oppression is something we need to support. And hit them where it counts. And like you're talking and about Seattle, where, counts, where you right. guys are, you know, uh, making sure they can unload their, their cargo ships. So it's, it's yeah. a kind of a, right. it's a worldwide thing happening. If we kept that momentum continues, it's very effective. Right. And, uh, and the people the supporting that, the movement are, are denounced so ferociously, Alice. They're accused right. of being anti-Semitic. Right. If you, right. if you, even the people who are boycotting only settlement produced products, they're accused of destroying Israel with this. It's, right. it's, and, it's and, considered know, a horrible big... crime to, to mm-hmm. be nonviolently question Israeli right. policies. Right. So, the accusation of being an anti-Semite, or if you're me, being a self-hating Jew, is being used to silence people, because nobody wants to be an anti-Semite, which is a good thing. Um, but I think that there's a major confusion between criticizing the policies of a country mm-hmm. and hating Jews because they're Jews. Right. And yeah. so the problem is that if you call someone an anti-Semite because they're critical of Israeli policies in the Gaza... Um, that shuts people up, but it also dilutes out the accusation of anti-Semitism because there actually is real anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. you know, in this country and in Europe. It's mostly a Christian phenomenon, and um, it comes out of you know the white supremacy movement in the United States. I mean, all those white supremacists who you know love Netanyahu actually hate Jews, you know. Um, so it's uh, it's very very dangerous for people to use that. Ac- um, well, that's interesting you said that. To silence people. Yeah, Netanyahu said, you know, if, uh, if you're against the the settlement movement, then you're, you know, for the ethnic cleansing of Jews. Right, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the right wingers um, were shouting, Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville. Right. Which right. Like <laughs> is just so bizarre and so extreme and so crazy, Alice. I just right. don't know what right. to say about it. I mean, as if that was even a possibility. How could they be afraid of Jews replacing them here in the U.S.? Well, you know, I mean, Jews it's, it's been the sort of traditional boogeyman in Christian societies for hundreds of years. So they're just following in the tradition of Christian anti-Semitism. I mean, you got to blame somebody, so you blame the Jews. Um, and that's real anti-Semitism. That is very different than criticizing the policies of the Israeli right. government. Yep.
big difference. What would can the U.S. do anything? <clears throat> so the Israelis begin to look at what really happened. They took land from people who were living there, and the people who are living there are very, very angry about it, and they're, they're causing problems. They're willing to look at it. Is there anything the United States and other countries could do that would make Israelis feel more secure in looking at these issues and and more secure that if they cut back on attacking other key people, that they would still be safe and protected? So I find that question really interesting because why is it our job to make Israelis feel more secure when they are a major military country, um, they have dominated the region, um, what, what, it's like, did we have to make Afrikaners feel more secure? Did we have to find, make slave owners feel more secure? I mean, it's just an odd question. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's our job. Well, I our think that the, say, the movement in South Africa af- actually made Afrikaners feel secure enough to give up some of their power. I mean, you mm-hmm. had Mandela. They could see him. They didn't think that if they gave up power uh, that that they would do it. And, and I know uh, uh, Afrikaners who supported uh, uh, Mandela and uh, the changes mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. did not believe that the changes were going to adversely sp- aspe- uh, affect them. They didn't think that mm-hmm. the, uh, mm-hmm. black folks were going to take their farms away and that they would have to right. leave the country. And, you know, there's problems. Well, I think, it, it, you know, if you look at um, the Palestinian thinkers who are, you know, thinking in broad ways this way, um, they're not demanding that Israelis, you know, go back to Poland. They're not demanding um, that, you know, Shlomo gives up his house in Jaffa for Abraham. Uh, Abraham. Um, they're just demanding an equal share. And I think that, you know, Israelis are, are you know, they've got this sort of cultural post-Holocaust trauma going on. They've got sort of the embrace of victimhood, which allows you to do whatever you need to do to survive, quote, end quote. Um, there's also sort of a repetition compulsion of traumatized people often traumatize people again the same way they were traumatized. There's all that yeah. stuff going on. Uh, but if you actually sit down and talk with Palestinians, you know, it, it should be reassuring. But most Israelis never get to do that. Um, and they're so afraid of what they have to lose that they can't see what they have to gain. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. That's my concern is that There'd be this great fear to actually look at the situation and the feeling that it, it's uh, the radical pessimism, radical pessimism, mm-hmm. kind of uh, post-traumatic stress that that, mm-hmm. that affects people in Israel, it affects the Jewish people mm-hmm. in Israel after what happened, right. and, mm-hmm. and and so there's they shut down in in terms of looking at what they're doing to other people. But this is, gosh, this is true. Of Pretty much everybody through human history. Yeah, yeah it's the right. same stuff over and over again with different hats on. So, Alice, what do you see as uh, what's your vision for the, the near future? In we've, this? we've got two minutes yeah. left, Alice, or a minute and a half. <laughs> what's so, your vision? The near, Go ahead. How, how near a future are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, this next, I mean, you know, next few future, years. I think yeah. we have to keep struggling. Yeah. We have to keep supporting mm-hmm. boycott divestment mm-hmm. sanctions. And we have to keep educating people about what the realities are on the ground and what the U.S. role is in supporting those realities. So, for instance, the Betty McCollum bill in Congress, we need to support that. We need to get all of our Congress people 
to know that that bill is there and to know that we want them to support it um, and that they will have our backing if they support it. So there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. You know, how it's all going to play out, I don't know. And it's not for me to decide. You know, I think the people in the region have to figure out, um, you know, I don't think a two-state solution is possible given the realities on the ground, but mm -hmm. is it going to be a one-state secular democracy? Is it going to be a federation? Is it, that's for them to figure out. Yep. But it has to have the components of justice in it for Palestinians. Yes. So okay, Alice, thanks a lot for being with us. We've We've run out of time. I'm sorry. We've run out of time. We've got 45 seconds left. We want to thank um, uh, Democrats of the Red Rocks for their support, the Avapai uh, Democratic Party, uh, Steve Segner's uh, El Portal Hotel. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.